0: So, I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but the last song we sang was um, a prayer. We've been doing a study of prayer. And the program itself, you have to. Yes. Um, as, as we know, um, most Christians struggle with prayer. It's about, It's hard especially if we don't understand it right now. Uh, I don't know if we picked up on it, though, when we sang that song. That prayer, from the beginning to the very first line, that Jesus, for Jesus, I bow, love to me all the way to the end, and draw me safely to the side, is purely and simply a prayer. And you notice every single line of that prayer was very, very biblically based, wasn't it? And very, very theologically sound, too. It's a beautiful picture of what we've been talking about in the last four, five, six weeks of prayer. So I just want to point that to you as we're saying this this is exactly what we've been talking about. Verses of frivolous empty, not focused on the, ob- the first object of faith, who is God, and not focused on the second object of faith, faith in the scriptures when it's been revealed, right? And we're saying instead this one is got both object of faith Clearly centered in him uh, as, as, as the author phrase right, the song. I just want to share that with you. When you take it home, encourage you to read over that again. It would uh, probably minister to you, of so the minister you to today. Well, we are making a shift today. We're, we could have spent another 20, 30, 40 weeks talking about prayer. Well, <laughs> yours probably I think you're right. Uh, we are not going to do so today. We're jumping into the book of Acts. So if you would turn to the book of Acts, I'd appreciate it. Um, just by way of, of understanding where we're headed, I'm going to spend some time today, uh, primarily, if not completely, talking about a background to the text that we know of as the Book of Acts, or more specifically, it's been traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, I would present to you that that is only secondarily true. I would just start there is only secondarily true the Acts of the Apostles. The reason why I say that is because the Apostles' Acts are by nature and by theology secondary. Because primary would be the Acts of of the Holy Spirit at work in the Apostles. In fact, some would say, well, but that's just kind of semantics, isn't it? No, that is essential to understand. This is not the Acts of the Apostles, although we are going to observe the Apostles, primarily Peter, first, and Paul, second, and there's been a lot of other characters in the storyline. I think we do the book and God's plan for this book of gross service, we call it the Acts of the Apostles. Because as I look around our group this morning, one of the things I see very clearly is this, we have no Apostles here. Correct? I know, Rusty, you're disappointed about that, because you thought. Yeah, you're close. There are no apostles here. And what's dangerous about viewing the book as the acts of the apostles is it removes you and I from the storyline. And that is absolutely important. We do not do. In fact, I would argue it's a fatal destruction to the book if we do that. We must not remove ourselves from this. Are the apostles in the storyline? Oh, absolutely. As means to God's end at that point. But what we're going to see, even in our introduction uh, material this morning, what we're going to observe very clearly is that it doesn't end at the end of chapter 28. It continues on. When you say the acts of the apostles, Worst case scenario, it ends around 105 A.D. when the Apostle John finally dies. But that is not the point. It's not even close to the point. It's more appropriate to understand the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the Apostles and others, and continuing on to this day. So, that's just about micro background the text. Uh, let me say this. Uh, today, again, we're just going to look at background. We're not going to really tear apart any passages. We're going to look at some passages, but we're not going to really tear into them this one. We we'll save that for next week and follow it. So in a very real way, you can say this is kind of like a, a priming pump for our study. If you have not started yet reading the book of Acts, I encourage you to do so. 28 pages long. I'm sorry, 28 chapters long. I don't know what pages is this long. Uh, 28 chapters long. Charles, uh, you're on the count, really. Um, because every book is different, right? Every translation, every size. Of it. um, anyway, it's 28 chapters long. It flows very nicely. It's e- an easy read. It's actually quite an enjoyable read. And uh if you like history. If you don't like history, it can be a little more of a struggle. But uh, if you're interested in biblical history, also well, in biblical history, this is the book. And so it's important that we that we uh understand this book, and we'll talk about it more as we work our way through. Uh let me just say real briefly: the, the writer of the book of Acts is Luke. Luke, according to Colossians, is uh, a, a physician. He also wrote another book, and the name of the other book is the Gospel of Luke. Very good. Luke was obviously the Gospel of Luke. If you read Luke and the Acts together, you can recognize that, that the Gospel of Luke was written first, and then the Gospel, the, sorry, the Epistle of Acts was written later. I'm not sure exactly how much later it could have been written. Immediately afterwards, there was one float right into the other or it could have had a a significant gap in between, really don't know. Ultimately it doesn't really matter. Um, But it it definitely comes after the Gospel of Luke. So ultimately, if you really want to understand the book of Acts, we're not going to do this, but if you really want to understand the book of Acts, one of the things that's really helpful is to read the previous book, because they're kind of like sequels. It's kind of tough to read the second book in a sequel, right? Without reading the first book. The first book, the Gospel of Luke, is focused on Christ, his birth, his ministry, his life, and his death, and his resurrection and ascension. That was was focused on. Primarily, however, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is focused on, although it has all that information, it primarily is focused on his Gospel ministry that was rejected, just like all of the four Gospels are, resulting in the need for, and the actual death, crucifixion of Christ, resurrection, and and all the ramifications of that, and conclusion, the ascension, which folds us into the book of Acts, uh, the book of Acts we're we're starting to look at this morning, it folds us into that, and it's really important to get it, Gospel of Luke, Jesus Christ's ministry, and his message. The book of Acts is recording the effects of the book of Luke, or the story of Luke. It's recording the effects. I would present you as recording the necessary effects, the expected effects, the inevitable effects. Now, we're going to develop that again in a few minutes. But that's important. It's not the possible effects of the gospel. It's the necessary effects. It is the guaranteed effects of the gospel of Luke. So let's, let's just continue our conversation. Acts covers a variety of, uh, of points in its storylines. So I'm just going to give you a, a brief overview of the book, if I may, for starters. A brief overview. In case you haven't read it yet. It starts out with you don't have to take notes unless you want to, whatever. But it starts out with with in chapter one, Jesus Christ giving his final statements to the apostles, the disciples at this point. The eleven, because we know Judas scary what happened to him. He killed himself. So he's Jesus in chapter one is giving the final instructions to the apostles. At which point in time, when that concludes, Jesus then ascends back to heaven, according to the story line. Chapter 2, what we have is we have, according to Luke, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples who are in the upper room and the ramifications of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're going to talk about that a little more this morning. Um, chapter 3, there's a healing that takes place. just uh, Chapter 3, a healing takes place. Chapter 4, there is a, uh, a first imprisonment. Chapter 5, you have, if you remember chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, we have the first meltdown of the church of the early church in chapter 5. Chapter 6, anybody have any idea? The stoning of Stephen. Actually, it's not primarily stoning of Stephen, but it includes the stoning of Stephen, right? That storyline. Actually, it's not yet the storyline, but it is the introduction of Stephen, right? Because there's a problem in the church. Chapter 6, you have the deacons being chosen, Stephen being one of them. And explanation about deacons there, and explanation of the problem. Um, And the problem gets pretty complex. Chapter 7, you have Stephen being drug off. And when he gets drug off, he gets drug off in front of unsaved people by, I would argue, some people who claim to be believers, because they're not getting satisfaction. Now we have full meltdown in the church. They didn't learn, obviously, from Ananias and Sapphira. Now we have full meltdown in the church. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, does what? He stands up and he what? He, he, preaches. he preaches the gospel to these lost people. At which point in time, and he knows it's coming, at which point in time they, they chafe against him to the point where they drag him out and they has gone. Chapter seven. Eight, we have what? Do you remember? We have, well, we, we have a variety of things, but what we have in, in, in chapter 8 that you, we should ring a bell for all of you is the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch. There's a number of other things going on there as well. The Ethiopian eunuch. Chapter 9, the biggest thing that happens is what? Say it louder, somebody? No, not yet. Saul. Saul gets converted, right? On the road to Damascus. Chapter 9. Chapter 10. Again, every one of these have a variety of things going on, but chapter 10 big thing that happens in chapter 10 is what? There it, 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 the chief character is Peter, and he experiences a vision. Any hey, remembrance? The, the clean and unclean animals. This begins the process of what you talked about, Tom, where it's, the gospel going to start going to Gentiles. But it's a visually clean and unclean animals that Peter has. And God says to Peter, don't ever call unclean what I call clean. In chapter 11, you have Peter. Now he's in trouble, and he has to give his own defense of, of his ministry and the gospel, right? Chapter 12, um, Peter kind of, except for the little exception of chapter 15, Peter vanished off the, off, off the storyline. He shows up in chapter 15 for a bit, but he generally speaking is shelved at this point. He's no longer front and center. Instead, now who's just starting take the front and center of the storyline? Paul will, absolutely. In light of that, chapters 13 and 14 is the first missionary journey. Paul's first missionary journey as he gets sent out for his first missionary journey. Chapter 15 is that Jerusalem. Council where there's a conflict between Peter and Paul over Gentiles. Peter doesn't quite get it yet. And Paul's calling him on account of that. And, and there's a major conflict. And it, it results in this Jerusalem Council, the first major church council where Peter gets, gets called to repentance. He repents and everything gets him fixed there. That's the last you kind of hear about Peter in the book of Acts. 16, 17, and 18 are lumped together. That's Paul's. Second missionary journey. That's 16, 17, and 18. 19 and 20, then is his third missionary journey. And some would argue his last missionary journey. I would argue it's not, although the the next ones are not called missionary journeys. They're usually forced upon him, but he has other journeys to present the gospel. Uh, so 16, 17, 18 is uh, Paul's third missionary journey, right? 1920, right? 1920, third missionary journey. Yeah, 1920. 20 at the end of 20, Paul gets what? He gets arrested. 21, he's having to start defending himself. 22, more defense different places. Chapter 22, by the way, he's giving his defense on top of the steps. He's on top of the steps in front of the synagogue, he's giving his defense on top Big that. Uh, 23, he's giving his defense to, in front of, anybody have any idea? No, the Sanhedrin. 23, he's giving his defense to Sanhedrin. 24, I always get these two confused. 24, he's giving his defense in front of Felix, I believe it is. 25, he's giving his defense in front of Festus. That's why Felix Festus. Festus. Um, And then 26. He's giving his defense, another defense, and that's in front of, anybody remember, King Agrippa. And then 27, 28, he gets sent off to Rome. That's the whole book. If you want to think through the book, that's the whole book, the flow of the story of the Book of Acts. And the more you can think it through, the more more you'll find it really helpful to actually think of it because it's going to become a foundation for New Testament Studies. I would argue it dramatically. In fact, let me just step back and say this. I want you to think about Acts this way. Remember, we've talked about the book of Deuteronomy before, right? When we talk about the book of Deuteronomy, we've said over and over and over again the book of Deuteronomy is the book that keeps on being looked back at from ever with regard to every book and every um, event that takes place afterwards, off of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it's also being looked back in the Gospels. Because Jesus declares unequivocally, right, that he is the fulfillment of the law. So it's even look, being looked back at, even from the Gospels. But Deuteronomy explains and helps you understand the rest of the Old Testament. If you don't understand Deuteronomy, you've heard me say it before, you don't understand the Old Testament. You just don't. You've got to understand Deuteronomy because it explains it all. It puts it all uh, proper context. When you come to the New Testament, you go through the first four Gospels and then you come to the book of Acts. Again, Gospels are looking at the ministry of Christ, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Although his ascension is found in the book of Acts. Um, what you have in the in, in the Gospels though are primarily what Jesus taught. And everything else is important, but Primarily, it's, it's, it's referencing, presenting what he taught. And then the, the book of Acts, as we've already said, is the response to that, the necessary and expected response to that by the followers of Christ, in this case, the apostles. From then on, I would present to you, remember what we started with? From then on, we have this idea that the book of Acts is not close in the last verse of 28, chapter 28. It does not do so. There are several reasons why I know that is the case. First of all, the storyline doesn't end with the apostles. Because Paul Paul doesn't die here. John doesn't die here. John dies much later. Many, many years later. Probably over 40 years later. Possibly 35 to 40. Or more. Paul doesn't die here. He dies after the book's closed. Paul's ministry still continues. Not only that, but the key verse we'll talk about it in a little bit, Acts 1 8, says what? You shall be my witnesses where? First. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth, right? That's what it says. Well, one thing we do know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know it. The apostles never made it to the Uh, the end of the earth, the uttermost part of the earth, never made it. They didn't even close. Not even close. We know that some apostle got to, like, Spain, but never even close the uttermost part of the earth. So even that alone says that the the, the storyline of Acts was open-ended. It continued. And so, it it initially continues from the last verse of 28 into Romans. Probably more appropriately said James. James is the first book written, but although James probably was written within the time frame of the book of Acts. But you get the point. It continued through the rest of the 27 books. Now, not only that, but I would argue that what we've said before, that, that the 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 epistles that we see, Romans to the end, are commentaries on the Gospels, right? Jesus teaching and said that. Except for one small chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's all commentaries on what Jesus spoke and taught. But what's interesting, not only are the rest of the epistles commentaries on what Jesus taught in the Gospels, but it is also, and this is equally important. The rest of the epistles look back to Acts as this that we taught that, that is described in the book of Acts is lived out in Romans to Revelation. And these writings, in these teachings, are, are parallel to, theologically, to everything that's going on in the book of Acts. There's a strong interwoven connection between them. In other words, you want to understand... Romans through Revelation, it's not just one book like in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. It's now five books that give you guidance to Romans through Revelation. It's four Gospels and the book of Acts. Very important. We grapple with that and understand that. We're trying to develop that as we work our way through this entire book. So let's. Um, Let's just try to understand a little more about the book itself then. Luke, in his writing of the book of Acts, repeatedly, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 28, very closely connects several things. And I want you to understand this because it's very important. He very closely connects the gift, or I'm sorry, the gifts of the Spirit with the mission that God is calling the Apostles and all those who come after too. Very strongly connecting this. Now, please understand, I would argue that the gifts being talked about, it gets really sketchy. I don't want to get too far into this right now because it's very controversial because when you look at the early gifts, our, our evidence in chapter 1, or early in the book of Acts especially, you have a lot of signed gifts going on. We're going to talk about those when we get to them. But then you have other things going on as well that we need to see as well. And then we got more statements later on in in the gospel in the epistles we need to wrestle with as well. So we're going to get those. I'm just going to leave it at that statement for right now. But so first, Luke closely connects the gifts of the Spirit and the gift of the Spirit, most primarily, the gift of the Spirit. That is the gift of the Spirit being the Spirit Himself with the mission that the people that we see revealed in the book of Acts are on, as well as all the discussions in the other books. So Luke closely links that. Secondly, or thirdly actually, Luke closely links, and this is really important, ties back to our previous study, Luke closely links prayer with the mission of the apostles and all those who come after he very tightly links it, and you'll see it over and over and over again. He very tightly links those two together. And just again, this is just prime the pump. We need to understand this. You find regularly in the storyline of the book of Acts that people are praying, the Spirit moves people, and mission takes place. Ministry, you can use that term as well. Ministry takes place. It's over and over and over again. It is the spirit and it is prayer that comes into play each time. Well, theologically, the book of Acts, often people think about the book of Acts as being primarily a history book, and I want us not to think that way. It is a history book. It's telling the history of the workings of the apostles, but it's not merely, and out- I would argue, it's merely a history book is primarily a theological book. Let me give you the primary theological terms or themes. I'll give them and I'll explain what they mean. It is, a, it is a primary theological study on what is called pneumatology. If you don't know what pneumatology is, it is a primary study on the person, the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, over 55, I think it's 59 times the Holy Spirit is referenced in the book of Acts. That's more than all the rest of the New Testament combined. It just drips with Holy Spirit conversation. And explanation and teaching. So pneumatology. Theologically, a big discussion. It would be called Christology. There's a lot of discussion on who Christ is in a variety of perspectives. So Christology is discussed. This doesn't flow in, in your normal thinking of, of theology, of the, at least the, the uh, organized, what's called systematic theology, but it's a theological treatise anyway, and you could use the term missiology. Have you ever heard that term? The study of. It. The ology stands for the study of. The study of, you guess what it is? The study of mission missions. You want to understand what God has said about mission, about being on a mission, about who we are and what we've been called to? The book of Acts lays it out very clear. A very colorful storyline uh, methodology, physiology. Can I say this? I'm going to bring up again in a little bit, but can I say this when we talk about theology? Um, I remember when I was in school, I used to hear people say this all the time. Not everyone is a missionary. Because if everyone was a missionary, then then there's no missionaries. They would argue that missionaries are people who are dedicating their life to evangelism, Cross-culturally. I reject that terminology completely. That is not a biblical term in any way, form a a biblical construct in any way, form, or fashion. We are all called to be missionary. A missionary is someone on a mission. Now, what's interesting, and I'm just going to briefly present this, is that you will find in the book of Acts as well as in Romans through uh, Revelation. That there is no room. There is no room in the storyline. There's no long, no room in the theological discussion of exception to that. That's going to become very important in the Book of Acts. There's no room for exception. So. As I, as I said before, this is, uh, I would argue, more a theological work than it is a, um, uh, than it is historical work. At the same time, we do learn a lot about the history of the early church and of Peter and Paul. So it's important we keep that in mind. If we're going to talk about just the structure of the book, there's two ways to view the structure of the book. The one is that it can be divided into seven, seven sections. The first section is the introduction which ends at the end of chapter 2. And I'm not going to break them all down for you, because i want to move on. But there's six other sections, and you would recognize it if you're reading the book, by it's almost like there's six progress reports that Luke gives the reader of what's taking place. And there's dramatic shifts at six different times throughout the book of Acts. And those progress reports, the progress of the church, the progress of the Spirit working in and through the church, Um, uh, will help us to break out the the book of Acts into the seven overall sections. However, at the same time, there is a a biblical breakout of the sections that is I think more important. And we've already referenced the verse. If you have your scriptures open, you'll see it in Acts 1.8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in, number one, Jerusalem, number two, In all Judea and Samaria, he links those two together, although one is a little further away than the other two, and to the outermost part of the earth. Those three or four categories are evident throughout this book as the gospel begins to go further and further and further away from Jerusalem. So that does break the book up into its individual sections, and probably I would argue that's probably a better outline. This a biblical outline to help us think through the book of Acts. So the purpose for the book, then, overall, the purpose for this book, the book of Acts, is not, again, to primarily give history. The purpose of the book is to, con- and I'll read this several times if you're taking notes, the purpose of the book is to confirm the faith of believers, again, to confirm the faith of believers, about the saving work of God, that was begun in the ministry of Jesus. I will. It is The purpose of the book is to confirm the faith of believers about the saving work of God begun in the ministry of Jesus. read one more time. To confirm the faith of believers about the saving work of God, begun in the ministry of Jesus. What, what are we trying to say? The book of Acts is written to believers describing the power of God, the entirety of the Trinity. The power of the Godhead in the saving work of God that is continuing despite anything and everything, it is continuing and will continue to take Acts one to the ends of the earth. It began in the ministry of Jesus and it's completed in the Holy Spirit that work. Let me get you the message statement of the book then. It's the a purpose message statement. I try kind to of draw a differentiation between that. The purpose, or the message statement of the whole book, I can sum the whole book up as a whole. You may or may not be able to write this down. It's longer. The scope of God's program now includes Gentiles as well as Jews in one body church. To accomplish this, God sends His Spirit to empower all believers to be a witness to the ends of the earth. That's a really important statement. I'm going to read it again. The scope of God's program now includes Gentiles as well as Jews in one body the church. To accomplish this, God sends his spirit to empower all believers to be a witness to the ends of the earth. So, the book of Acts explains, firstly, that the gospel is now going where as well? Well, To the Gentiles, right? It's not just to the Jews, it's going to the Gentiles as well. Salvation is available to the Gentiles as well. And we are being united into one body. Romans continues to develop that. The church. And then when we say to accomplish this, he sends a spirit to empower all believers. My my choice of words here is very important. To to accomplish this, God sends his spirit, we call him the Holy Spirit, He sends his spirit to indwell and empower not some believers, but all believers to be a witness to the ends of the earth. Now, this is going to develop over as we work our way through, but let me just pause this for a second. I mentioned, I alluded to it earlier, but I want you to hear this because. What Acts is going to argue unequivocally is that if we are saved, we have the Spirit. And if we have the Spirit, he is empowering us to to be on a mission. To proclaim God's Word, the Gospel, to the ends of the earth. Now, what I, what I mean by this is, is, is this. It's very important. What what Luke is driving towards so strongly here, and Paul brings it to light as well, Peter brings it to light as well, John brings it to light, James brings it to light, Jude brings it to light, they all do. And it's summed up so eloquently in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, it's summed up most eloquently in that verse we've already looked at. So even though we're going to examine it more closely later on, let's look at it now, verse 8 again. Notice, words are important. What did he say? But you will receive power. Obviously at this point in time it is past, present, or future tense in that verse. Future tense for the apostles. for the disciples at this point in time. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So, there's a promise there. Is there not? You will. Not you may. Right? But you will. Let me see that. Now you may, you will. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he goes on beyond that for the common. And you will be my witnesses. Again, future tense, right? Because the Holy Spirit had come upon you power yet, correct? You will be my witnesses. What's interesting is again words mean something. Jesus in his final communication with the disciples doesn't say. You may be my witnesses. Does he? Or he doesn't say you have the opportunity to be my witnesses. Does he? He doesn't say if you choose to you can have the privilege of being my witnesses. Does he? This is really important. What is he saying here? You will, a promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you. Second promise, it's a little veiled, but the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You get that? Third promise, you will be my witnesses. And then he finally tells where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth, or the end of the earth. In this very short, very simple statement, Jesus says something astounding. In fact, he says several things astounding. we need to hear it. The Christian church needs to hear this. Number one, the Spirit, the scriptures teach unequivocally that the Spirit, the Godhead, let's just, just stick with the Trinity, the Godhead doesn't change, right? No change. God is God. God is always God. He's always holy. He's always this. He's always He's always that. Is he not? And he makes a promise. Is he a promise making promise keeping God? Is he always that? Yes. And that's what makes this verse so amazingly powerful. Because whether you realize it or not, what what Luke just said. Is he gave a mark of delineation between a believer and an unbeliever? Probably one of the most stunning delineations between a believer and unbeliever in all the scriptures. For a believer, what's going to happen? Remember, we've already established not just for the disciples, right? What's going to happen for believers? You will receive power. As we said, right? Is that what he said? He said, you will receive power. That power is coming with Holy Spirit power. Supernatural power. Correct? Correct. Now combine that statement, if you would, please, with the statement in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he does what? He makes you alive, does he not? And the scriptures tell us he gives us a new heart. Put all that together. What do you say? You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and as we work our way through the book of Acts, we'll see early on there's a disconnect between someone being saved and being indwelt by the Spirit. But later on, that, that, that difference disappears. And it's happening at conversion. when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You hear that? You will be. Where? In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, the other part of the earth, or the ends of the earth. Which ties directly back to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, when he says, as you are going, do what? Make disciples, by baptizing them and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and lo, in this introduction to 1.8, I will be with you always. And later on he promises to give his Holy Spirit, who will be with us. How long? Always. So if we understand Acts 1.8 correctly, then we have to say what? If the Holy Spirit's come upon me, he's, going to, he's not going to come upon me with impotence, is he? Correct? He's going to come upon me with power to accept. And it's not going to be Nambi Pambi power. It's going to be could I take another passage and, and grab it? Resurrection power. Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about the power of his resurrection. His resurrection power. That's radical power, isn't it? That's radical power. And unlike what a lot of people say about this power as we talk about here, and a lot of people say, well, you know, we get our word dynamite from this power the Greek word is due to this. We get our word dynamite from that. So the Holy Spirit, when comes by, he's like, dynamite? No, he's not. dynamite dynamite's destructive. It's there for a moment and gone. There's nothing about dynamite that is Holy Spirit power. Holy Spirit power is there always and it brings life. That's what it brings. That's what he brings. Life. And this power that he just references in chapter 1 verse 8 is this idea that he brings power, the result of the power that he brings in his indwelling of a believer is what? The believer who receives that power becomes what? a witness, which should cause every person who claims to be a believer to pause and ask themselves a really important question. And the really important question is, is that me? Right? Is that me? Am I a witness? Do I... Do I have the Spirit as evidenced by power? And that power, according to the book of Acts, and I'm just giving an intro to the book of Acts, one of the things we see in this power as presented in the book of Acts is, is this power of the Holy Spirit changing people. Paul goes from, I'm sorry, Saul goes from hating Christ and, and hating believers to three days after getting his sight back, he does what? He goes to a synagogue and he preaches Christ and crucified. What? That's pretty radical. Paul and Silas go from preaching the gospel to being thrown in prison, and they sit in prison, and rather than moaning and groaning, the power of the Holy Spirit in them causes them to do what? Sing. Say what? Sing praises to God. To lift up their voice in praise. Not moaning and groaning, not griping. Not complaining, not wishing it would all just go away. They're singing praises to God because that's all they can do. And God brings an earthquake. The gates, the doors fly open. Paul and Silas keep the prisoners there. And then as as the prison guards get ready to kill himself, what happens? Paul screams out, wait, stop, don't kill yourself. And then, what happens next? In absolute boldness, he doesn't like He creates Christ. He creates God. Stephen, facing sure death. He doesn't try to weasel a lot of it, does he? It's not because Stephen's such a great guy. It's not because he's some super spiritual giant that I could never be. You know what it is? spirit power. That's what it is. Spirit power. What would Stephen do? And by the way, if you read the text, you know it's true, because the Bible says, and Stephen, blank of the Holy Spirit, what did he say? Full of the Holy Spirit. They heard Full of the Holy Spirit does what? Preaches. And his preaching is pretty painful stuff. Not happy, clappy preaching, friends. This is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Stephen gets up in front of these unsaved people and says, Which one of the prophets did you kill? The people want to kill him. They preached on Christ. That's Holy Spirit power. And you can walk throughout the pages of the, of the book of Acts and you'll see it over and over again. Is there any mistake, did you catch it when we walked through the book, how many times Paul gave a defense? There's like five or six different times he's giving a defense, not of himself. Is he defending himself? No! Who is he, he presenting the defense of? Christ. He's preaching the gospel. What's he's doing? There's it or Agrippa or to the Sanhedrin or to the crowd he's doing it over and over and over again where did that come from? that's the theme running throughout the book of Acts and by the way it's a theme running throughout Romans through Revelation you see even the worst times, I think it's in Revelation in get as late as possible in, in the chronologic, not chronologic, not chrono, chronological, not chronological, not chronological, but just the land of, of the Bible we have. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we have one church, I don't remember the exact church, but we have one church that's like absolutely off the rails. Like they're bowing to Baal. It's probably figurative versus physical. The picture, the metaphor. But they're bowing to Baal, it says. And what does John write to them about? Raise hands, to them? Today, we'd expect to say what? Go find a better church. That's what we expect John to say. What does he say instead? He says this. He says, there's a few of you who have not yet failed your need to God. So, fail. for those of you few, he said, stir up what remains. As he said, stir up names. what remains. Who's he referring to? Stir up one another, those few of you who have not bowed your name. <coughs> stir each other up in Christ. Minister one another in Christ. Well, you know as well as I do, If you've got a church full of people bowing to Baal, and there's four of you, say for example, who haven't? And you just start ministering to the other three, and the other three are ministering to you three, and you're just ministering to one another, do you think that maybe you're going to stand out like a sore thumb of the church? Do you think maybe you're going to get some persecution coming from within? You think? Do you think maybe it's going to get really bad? But yeah, because of the idolatry. <clears throat> They're gonna hate you. Light's in the midst of darkness. Absolutely. Light's in the midst of darkness. But he tells those few stir up over remains. What's the point? Holy Spirit power. How do you handle all that abuse? How do you handle all the difficulty? Stir up the Spirit is at work. When Peter writes First and 2 Peter to a horribly persecuted church, what does he say to them? You know, he doesn't say, I understand, it's tough. Oh, I know, it's really tough, guys. That's not what he says to him. What does he say to him? I want to remind you of the Spirit in you. I want to remind you that you have the Spirit and power. Minister! Be light, as you said, be lights in the midst of this grotesque darkness. He is calling the people to be what God promised that they would be. I would present to you that the times when you find people who claim to be believers in the New Testament, there's no mission going on, they're not presented as believers. They're just not. You read through Romans through Revelation. You need to read the book of Acts. Be clear. The Spirit's not working in this way. The Spirit's not working. You're on a mission. This is, this is my mission. This is, this is what I'm called to. This is why God saved me. This and not only is it, it, it's not driven by law, but it's driven by spirit power. Please don't miss the point. It's driven by spirit power. At work in us. I, I remember this is pre-spirit falling on people, but when when on the entry, do you remember the storyline? The Pharisees come to Jesus and said to Jesus, Will you tell your followers to be quiet? Remember? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what did Jesus say? The rock, the rock, the rock. If they were quiet, the rocks would cry out. The wild rocks would cry out. Because the Spirit. I mean, why would a donkey cry out? Spirit. Donkeys can't speak. But a donkey spoke, didn't it? Right? The old testament? Why? How did a donkey speak? Because the spirit The point I'm trying to make is when the spirit comes, something changes. And that's what that's what Luke's establishing right off the bat here, something changes, It continues to change, yes, but we can't miss even reading the book of Acts, that when someone gets saved early on, what happens? Right away you find people being on a mission, don't you? See in the Gospels, right? They meet Jesus, they're on a mission, they're changed, then in the book of Acts, and they, 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 they come in contact with the gospel, and by the Spirit, they receive the gospel in our course to say, what happens? Change. Mission begins. In Romans through, through Revelation, you see the same thing, don't you? When the Spirit moves on someone, mission. It happens. It doesn't happen 30 years later. It doesn't happen because I got this special call of God to go to Indonesia or something. It Happened. It Begin today. It. Yes. So in chapter one, we're reasonable to argue the apostles were the elect of God and were not Gentiles. Sorry, say it again. Hey, we're in We're we're in an interesting time frame. Obviously, I, let me address it briefly. There certainly is a time frame, uh, shifting time frame in in uh, the early part of Acts. Like you see, there are times when people seem to be converted later on they receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, you'll see that early on. We'll talk about it uh, early, or yeah, the first couple chapters of the Acts. You'll see that. So we're in that weird time frame. Are they believers at this point? Yeah, I think they are. They absolutely are. I think the evidence is kind of clear. But the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. There's a big transition taking place here. Yes. Yeah. But again, there is there is a. Early on, again, in the book of Acts, it seems like, certainly, salvation is caused by the Spirit. We want to recognize that completely. But there seems early on to be this secondary thing that takes place that disappears and so we work our way through. Yes. Yeah. And it could very well, you could also argue, it's a good question, out, but you could also very well argue that, just like all of us, it's a process, Right? our self, we think about it. we think about our salvation, our justifications so of until your thing. Once one moment time, boop, there's where it happens. Right? But in reality, there was a lot of other things that took place coming up to that most likely. And and more and more clarity as the spirit is is continuing to work until we come to that point. There's, there's a moment. Yes, yes, absolutely. But oftentimes is not what I'm trying to say, oftentimes it's not what we think it is. So we could argue that the apostles are on a journey, or the disciples are on a journey to that point. But at the same time, we see that there's a little bit of a difference early on in the Book of Acts versus later. It's one of the controversies of the Book of Acts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Certainly electo Absolutely. But at the same time, a dramatic shift in the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and we see that very good. Peter before salvation, or before sorry, before the Spirit falls upon him in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. Before then, what do we find? Peter. Denying Christ, fearing a slave girl, hiding in fear in the upper room, right? That's we find along with the rest of, of the 11. And then the Holy Spirit falls on them, and Peter is like, Mr. Bold, like, what just happened? He stands to the very people that he was denying. I would bet the slave girl is there. And he's doing what? He's preaching boldly the gospel of Christ. Actually, it's stunning. So let's move on, Um, let's see, where am I, okay, okay, so we, we learn of of several promises in the book of Acts that are laid out really clearly and then developed in the, in the epistles. We learn, first of all, of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, they repeat at this, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's a promise of the Holy Spirit. And that promise of the Holy Spirit is re explained and re explained as being for everyone throughout the New Testament. Everyone that believes, everyone that is, that is saved. So we learn of the promise of the Spirit, chapter one, verse four and five. We also learn of the character of the Spirit's power in verse one, chapter one, verse six to eleven. If you bear with me, the reader, real quickly. So when they had come together, they asked him, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel?" He said to them, he did "Not to you to know." times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven as he went both two men stood uh, by them in white robes, he said, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we have in one, uh, in chapter one, verse six to eleven, this description of the Holy Spirit's power. We've already talked about that. I just read the bigger context of it. We also, in chapter, uh, in, in the book of Acts, learn, uh, with regard to the results of the Spirit's work. The Spirit is described as coming with power generically, point nine, verse eight, right? Except for it's clarified, it is going to result in mission, correct? That's the one clarification we have at this point. But what we have next is a uh, description. I'm sorry, a demonstration of the Spirit's power, chapter two, verse sixteen through forty. If you look over chapter two, starting verse sixteen. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my servants, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and the signs of the earth below, Blood and fire and vapor and smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day the great day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonderful signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus. My flesh shall also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tombs with us this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his sons upon his throne, throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that they are all we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, shall I make your enemies your footstool? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom who you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and baptize every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sin, that you will receive, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of for you and for your children all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. And with many other words he bore witness. and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Pretty powerful section of verses, isn't it? What we just read is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, there's a lot of things I can say there. I'm going to save it for when we get into that section itself, but do you sense, do you recognize, and there's like every line, almost every verse talking about the power of the Spirit at work, isn't it? It's a demonstration of power. Do you get the sense that when the Spirit comes on someone, he's demonstrate himself? Isn't that pretty evident? It's evident in Peter, as he preaches. It's evident in those who are hearing. It's evident in the prophecies of Joel, that are being fulfilled in their very midst. You see it everywhere in these, in these verses we just read. The demonstration is clear, it's powerful, it's evident. And then here we also see we learn of the results of the Spirit's Word. And that's found in 41 to 47. So those who received this Word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, that is the saved ones, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe shielded upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking. Bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day and those who were being saved. The results are pretty dramatic, aren't they? The evidence of the Spirit's work is clear. Again, we'll save the nuts and bolts of the, of the text when we get to it. But I want to show you this teaching. So I would argue. This, and then we're going to move off of it. Chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Acts is if going to use the term, the paradigm, the, the, the template, as it were, to chapter 3 to 28. In other words, it, it's the lens in which it will help us understand chapter 3 through 28. 1 and 2 establishes the entire chapter. Does that make sense? Very important we guess that. So the key verse, you can probably guess it, right? The key verse in the book of Acts would be what then? Chapter 1, verse 8. Absolutely, it's a key verse. So, let me close on this, if I may. C.A. Carson, one of my favorite reads, not always in my camp, one of my favorite uh, authors to read, theologians to read, said this, I thought it was very interesting. I'm going to quote him, and then I'll stop the book and pick the quote back up again. He said this, Although I find no biblical support for a second blessing theology, what he means by second blessing theology is the charismatic, the charismatic idea that that uh, I receive Christ and later on I receive the Spirit and then at that point in time I start speaking in tongues and healing and raising and the dead—all rest of the side gifts. He says, although I find no biblical support for a second blessing theology, which I don't either, I do find support for a second, third, fourth, fifth, etc. Bless, blessing theology. What he means by that is, I don't see that, that classic second blessing theology, but what I see is a spirit working in people over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again. All believers. Without fail. He's working in all believers, and he's working on them with regard to the mission that he's brought us to. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about. He goes on. He goes on to say, and I, begin, I, I enter into the quote again, it is dangerous, and I would add to it, it is eternally dangerous. I add the word eternal there. It is dangerous to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity. What he means by that is it's eternally dangerous to be satisfied merely with a theology that I can... Speak about, that I can explain, that I can understand, that I can organize and present. Having a creed is a valuable thing. Understanding your theology is essential. But he says again, it is dangerous to be satisfied with merely a creedal Christianity that is kosher but complacent. In other words, it's correct, but it doesn't do anything. It's eternally dangerous. Anybody can pick up a theology book and spew out correct theology. You don't need to be saved to do that. Again, it is dangerous to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher but complacent. It is orthodox but ossified. The word ossified, I had to look up to see that Ossified means calcified or, um, what, or hardened, or turned into a um, a dinosaur, you, you picture a dinosaur, it's just like a museum piece. So it is danger, eternally dangerous to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher but compliant, orthodox, but ossified, sound, but soundly asleep. Dangerous place to be. In fact, I would take it one step farther in light of Acts 1 8. That describes you, according to Acts 1 8, you probably do we have the power of the Spirit. That's not any description, any one description what the Holy Spirit does. I don't know. I mean, what you know what scares me when I think about typical Christianity today? What scares me is that typical Christianity today would not hold a candle. Typical Christians today would not, hear me very closely about this, I will close, would not hold a candle to a man we all know very well. And the man is demons. Typical, the typical person who claims to be a believer in the typical Christian church, a certain Christian church today, would not hold a candle for the person demons. Who's demons? Well, we all know him really well, right? No. He was a man who traveled with Paul. He was a man who was involved in missionary journeys with Paul each He too. He was a man that Paul found, I use the word, downplay. useful, profitable, in a ministry, in a mission. And then later on in 2 Timothy, Paul says, Yeah, that guy, Demons, that misrepresented, and the implication against him, too many. It's all about co ministering to each other. Who ministered to me? I ministered to him, and we ministered together to a lost and dying world. And churches that were he and I planted churches. We were on a mission. They left me because he loved the president. That's a stunning statement, isn't it? I look at Davis. I say. How many of us in the conservative Christian church in America, I'm just singling out America because that's where we live, are people that recognize our mission by the power of the Holy Spirit? And with power are involved in nation. please don't miss my point. I'm not. To guilt anybody, not at all, because we'd be totally I'd say, Well, I should try harder. <laughs> we know that. I bet I best get out of here and go do a mission. That's what God says, right? He called it. Yes, He called do that. But he says, it's "After you receive power, what happens? We receive power. A mission's going to happen." But here's a guy, James, didn't even have the power of the Holy Spirit. He covenantly low the present world. Wonder, wonder. If we look at our own lives and ask ourselves a question: Is this what spirit power looks like? I wonder if we're be on ourselves if we would say that Spirit, that God, because he's God, that God, we would honestly be able to say that God's worthy of serving. Because that's all the power of God. Wonder. Do. Now it's important to remember what I say that there's no question. In the Gospel, in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, we see that along with that, there's prayer going on all the time. See that connection? Can I just challenge us all to get into the book of Acts next week? Perhaps, in light of our introductory study today, perhaps you can start out by saying, I need your power. I don't need just a do. I need you. I need your power because I'm afraid. I'm like Peter at like crucifixion. I'm not like Peter in Acts chapter 2. I know that I have a different personalities. I'm like Peter in the crucifixion, fiction. i afraid of a slave girl. I need you. I need you, God, to change my heart as we read through the book of Acts and read it in light of that. Read through it and study through it and say, that's what I need. I need Spirit. I need you to transform me. If you don't transform me, I have nothing. I need you to do. it. I need you to into yourself. I need you to change my heart. I need you to reveal my sin. I need you to reveal my idol. I need you to tear down those idols. I don't want anymore to be the people who are bowing and need to fail. I want to be one of the few my power to do it. to That's what we need to be. That's what we need to be is praying. That's the theme of Acts, praying. Spirit works. What did God say? He said, if you seek me, you will what? Find me if you seek with all your heart. And even that is a Spirit-driven thing. And I would argue, when the Spirit works in our life, you know what we do? We seek with all our heart. It's, it's, it's just another example of that, right? But I'm not seeing it all in my heart, it makes me wonder wait a second, what's going on? What do I missing? All things are from him, through him, to him, to him and quite and and forever and amen. If that's not my theme, if that's not my life in a growing way by the power of the Holy Spirit, it must make me say, Wait, stop, back up the horses. This thing called Christianity I have doesn't look like it's not reflected in the scriptures. Something's wrong here. Something horribly wrong. I need the eternal God doctor to perform heart surgery. Right? Please change it. you say this? Bishop. Mission will happen. I'm convinced of it. Mission will happen. not mean everything you say. Maybe I'm gonna hate them. I don't know. Mission will happen. That's what's good at a at that At the same time, he doesn't say just any other questions. One of the most amazing things to me as I read later the book of Acts over and over again. Bad things happen. People experience the work in. Bad things happen. But the most <laughs> incredible thing is it okay with that? It's okay with that. can back to thing come again. They're probably fine with it. Really, Steve? Yeah. Paul says, What? Look at chapter 4. I've learned the secret of contentment. Perfect right. mind. That's always good. Let's bring that show. Lord, help us. We know that there are devices, but we will do every time. Settled not for a supernatural Christianity, but for a natural Christianity, a, a faux Christianity, a Christianity that has the trappings of what your word says, it has the veneer, but it doesn't have to do with it. it Has the words, maybe <coughs> even has some of the actions. It doesn't have power. So, Lord, we ask you to change us. We don't need mission. We need power. Mission will come. We need the Holy Spirit to come. We need the Holy Spirit. You promised your children. We ask you to do it. I we it. sorry to be running a long time here this morning, but I'm like we